Welcome again. We are so excited about the prospects of getting back into the building soon uh, with our face-to-face -face meetings, but we're also still very grateful that we could connect together online. And of course, we will continue doing that even after we have our services come back to our campuses. We are in a series called Discipleship Begins at Home. And each week we've been looking at different examples in scripture of how uh, adults, some parents, some not, have poured into the generations coming behind them to disciple them to live lives that honor God and that bless others. And today we're going to be looking at another attribute called nourishing giftedness. Now giftedness is something that I think every parent thinks their child is gifted in some way. And that's not a bad thing. I think that's a good thing. I, I, that's part of what we're going to be talking about today is how every child is created by God with certain makeup and ability and giftedness, and he's got a plan for that. The example we're going to look at today, though, is a little bit different because we're going to be looking at a passage that traditionally we only look at around Christmas. We're talking about the parents that God chose for his son Jesus, and how they had to nourish his giftedness when he was brought into the world. So that's what I want to begin with today. The first thing is Jesus' greatness that God revealed he was going to have. Uh, he revealed it to Mary and to Joseph. In Luke chapter 1, let's begin with verse 26. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You found favor with God. You'll conceive and give birth to a son, and you ought to call him Jesus. And listen to these next words. He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. I want us to try to imagine as best we can today what it must have been like for Mary and Joseph to be told the awesome responsibility they were going to have in raising this child, this special child. His greatness was, first of all, predicted. The, the angels are saying to Mary right here, that this is a, a prophecy in a way, that this child that, that she's going to conceive and it's going to be a miraculous conception, that's great to start with, but the child himself is going to be great. He's going to be set apart. He's going to be unique, not like any other child ever born into the world. The pressure that she must have felt was probably overwhelming. She's honored that God has chosen her. She expresses her gratitude and her love for God and in response to what the angel tells her. But she ponders these things, it says. She, she dwells on them because she understands the significance of this child that God is going to bless her with. 
Well, the angel understood too. God understood that he needed to convince Joseph about this miraculous birth so that he would join with Mary in raising this child in marriage. And, and so an angel came to Joseph too and, and gave him the news about how God was doing a miraculous thing with Mary and the birth of this child so that, that he could understand the significant role that God wanted him to play and coming alongside Mary and pouring into this child and, and guiding and directing this child that was going to be born. The greatness of this child was predicted, was prophesied. They, they knew in advance even before the child was going to be born. And I wish we could capture again in our hearts and minds and our culture even before a child is born, while the child has just been conceived and just growing in the womb of the mother, the, the greatness that God has placed in each child, the potential that God has already put there for that child so that we could value the awesome blessing and responsibility it is to bring a child into the world. It was predicted and then it was also confirmed. This greatness that this child was going to have was confirmed all the way through the process. It began with the angels, of course. Uh, that's confirming the greatness of the child that God would send angels to communicate the coming of this child. But also it's introduced here in this passage with uh, Elizabeth already expecting a child. And her pregnancy was also miraculous because she was past the normal childbearing years. And she had not been able to have a child before then. And so God is saying through uh, Mary's relative Elizabeth that there's a connection here that this child Elizabeth is going to have is preparing one who would be special too and preparing the way for the coming of the child Mary was going to have. So God was working through all of that to confirm to Mary and to Joseph and to the world the greatness of this child that was going to be born. He also confirmed it in other ways. When, when the birth actually occurred, you remember they they had ended up having the baby in this uh, stable and, and, and uh, putting the child in a manger and a feeding trough for animals. And Mary and Joseph must have been confused and puzzled about why things had not gone better for them. And, and coming to that place where the child was delivered there in Bethlehem. And God confirmed it further that this child would be great by, by sending shepherds that angels had appeared to and had been given the message that this child would be the savior for everyone. And, and the shepherds came and shared that news with Mary and Joseph. And again, confirmation of the greatness of this child. Later on, when it was time for them to take the baby Jesus to the temple to be dedicated and confirmed before God, uh, there was a man there named Simeon at the temple who was an older gentleman who had been serving in the temple for many years, it says. And, and he spoke of this child and, and prophecy about this child, that, that God had this plan for this child and, and how this child was going to be part of God's plan to bless the nations. And again, the greatness of this child was confirmed. And then there's a prophetess, Anna, who was there, who also spoke to Mary and, and Joseph about this child and, and the prophecy of God over this child. And again, the, the confirmation came of the greatness of this child. Later on, the confirmations continued. John the Baptist, remember, was the child born to Elizabeth that had been prophesied would lead the way and prepare the way for Jesus. And after Jesus had reached adulthood and was ready to begin his ministry, John the Baptist has his followers around him and he looks off in a distance and there he sees Jesus walking across the way and he said, look, 
the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And then he said, I must decrease and he must increase, confirming the greatness of this child, Jesus. The greatness was then continually demonstrated after it was predicted and after it was confirmed, it was demonstrated in the life of Jesus. I can't imagine the difficulty and the pressure Mary and Joseph were feeling as Jesus was growing up and they knew they had the responsibility of teaching this child and, and raising this child. But God, uh, God had his hand on this child the whole time and God had this plan for this child, but yet they still had a responsibility to do their part. And, and it seems they, they made sure they were consistent in their witness and their example and their teaching uh, for Jesus as he was growing up, it says on one occasion when Jesus was 12 years old, they had gone to Jerusalem at the appointed time. You see, they were keeping under the law. They were being obedient to what God had called them to do. And Jesus had grown up with that in his life. And he had witnessed that his whole life with his parents. And now they go to Jerusalem. And, and after they leave, they're traveling some journey back. Remember, they had to travel on foot or maybe riding on an animal. And it would take a long time. And they realized Jesus wasn't with the group. As they were traveling back home, he's 12 years old. You know, a 12 year old will often get with their friends or, or wander off and get involved in other things. And they're wondering, well, where's Jesus? They couldn't find him among any of their family, a unit that had traveled together. And so they went back to Jerusalem to look for Jesus. And you know where they found him? In the temple. And he wasn't just in the temple. He was there talking with the teachers. The, 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 those that were supposed to be the most learned men uh, in their culture and matters of God. And there's Jesus conversing with them and asking questions. And it says the teachers were amazed at his wisdom and his understanding at the age of 12, demonstrating the greatness again of this child. Well, that continued on. We find a, a, a summary passage that says he continued to grow in, in wisdom and, and knowledge and in favor with God and with man as he grew up. He, he was developing that greatness that God had put in him, that he was as God in the flesh. And in Luke 2, we find an occasion where early on and in, in Jesus beginning to reveal himself for who he was, uh, they are at a wedding feast. His mother Mary is there, uh, probably was some friend or family member they had gone to the wedding feast for, and they had run out of wine. And Mary puts Jesus right on the spot right there. He says, well, well, just Jesus will take care of this for you. Just talk to him. And Jesus says, well, why are you bothering me with this? But, but then Jesus understood his mother was counting on him. And I can't help but think there was a little bit of motherly pride here where she said, ah, this is my chance to let everybody know how great my son is, right? He can handle this. He'll take care of this. Even if nobody else can, I believe he can. Uh, I can't imagine how proud she was of her son, Jesus. And here she is at this wedding feast, and she asked Jesus to, to take care of the host. And Jesus takes the water uh, and tells them to fill up water jars. And when they do, he changes it to wine. And not only was it wine, the, the, the guests said that they were surprised that the host had saved the best wine for the end instead of serving it first. Usually they did it the other way around. And they were amazed, those that saw or witnessed what Jesus did. Again, his greatness was being demonstrated. And then uh, uh, in in the early part of his ministry, one way the greatness was demonstrated over and over again 
was the miracles that he began to perform. He taught like nobody else ever taught. He had authority like nobody else had authority. And he demonstrated that authority over sickness and disease and, and over the wind and the waves over and over again, demonstrating his greatness. You see, Jesus, Jesus came here for a, a purpose that God had in his plan for all of humanity. Now, I don't want to make a transition here to say, well, every child born is great in exactly the same way Jesus is. That's not what we're saying. What we're saying here is the scripture goes on to teach that within every human being that is born, that is conceived, God has placed a design, a plan, a purpose for their lives. It's not the same as Jesus, but it is to help fulfill God's plan through Jesus. Every human being conceived, God has a plan that he wants them to be involved in fulfilling his overall plan to bring lost men and women back home to him. And so in that sense, every child conceived has within them from God a greatness that God has put there, a potential for that greatness of fulfilling God's plan and purpose. So for the rest of our time, I want us to look at our responsibility as adults, whether we're parents or not. All adults have influence over the generations coming behind us. And part of what we need to be doing is the discipling those coming behind us, uh, pouring into them the disciplines that God wants them to have in their lives so that they can fulfill their part of God's plan. So let's look at our responsibility in light of that. One of the things we need to do as much as we can, there's some limit to it, but as much as we can, we need to identify and encourage their giftedness of those children coming behind us. Sometimes it's not as evident as we would like for it to be. Oh, I know exactly what that child needs to do. I know what their, their life plan needs to be. I know what their skills are. We don't always know that. But, but if we are observant and we are spending time with children and, and, and pouring into them, we begin to see what comes back out of them, what their natural tendencies are, what their natural likes and dislikes are. And we need to try to, as early as possible, identify what some of their gifts are so that we can encourage them to understand their giftedness in light of what God wants for them and then connect that with how God can use that and his plan for the redemption of the world. Psalm 139 is, is one of my wife's favorite passages and I love it as well. Psalm 139, begin, and beginning with verse 13, it says this about children that God brings into the world. Uh, he says, for you created my inmost being you knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Did you catch that? The wonder of God forming that child in the womb. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. Please catch this. Please. That baby conceived in the womb. God already sees that child and that body formed in the womb. He has already placed in that child a plan and a purpose for that child. There is greatness already that God has put there in that child. 
That's why I am so strongly a pro-life pastor. And I know all the arguments about all of that. I know I'm not here to argue that. What I want you to understand is God's value and, and potential that he puts in every child conceived in the womb. And I want us as Christ followers to begin to embrace again what God wants us to see in every child conceived and see the greatness that God wants for that child. He says, all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. God already had a life plan for a child conceived in the womb. Still in the womb, he already had the life plan for that child. We need to honor God by honoring those lives conceived in the womb and valuing those lives conceived in the womb. Well, we need to begin with recognizing giftedness because that giftedness, I believe, comes from God. It's by his design. But here's the thing. The main purpose for their gifts that we need to, to nurture and connect them with is to build up the church. God puts gifts and abilities in, and, and likes and dislikes into the way he made us with a plan that we would then use the way he designed us for the good of the kingdom. Notice what he said in 1 Corinthians 14. Uh, Paul is talking about the gifts of the Spirit, how God gives different gifts to everybody. And he says this, So it is with you, since you are eager for gifts of the Spirit, try to excel in those gifts, he's talking about, that build up the church. What's the ultimate use and value of the giftedness God gives us? Make a lot of money, get famous, be, be recognized all over the world. Is that what it's about? Those things could happen, but that's not the primary purpose of the giftedness God puts in our children. The primary purpose of the giftedness is so that they could be used to build up the church, the body of Christ, the bride of Christ. It's the church that's the kingdom of God being revealed on earth through the church. And our gifts are to be used for the church. That's God's primary purpose for our gifts. And that's the best use of our gifts. So we need to learn to recognize and nurture the gifts. We also need to learn to recognize their need to learn obedience, even if they're gifted. Uh, I, I don't think many parents in our culture today struggle as much with recognizing the giftedness of their children as they do with understanding that even if their children are gifted, they still need to be under the authority of their parents and under the authority of God. They still need to learn to be obedient to those authorities in their lives that God has placed in their lives. They need to learn obedience. All through scripture, there is a theme and a pattern that God designed the family to work a certain way. He designed marriage between man and woman uh, for life. That's the way he designed it. He designed children to be born into uh, a marriage relationship. That's how he designed it to work. Now, I know we could choose to do it other ways and we could still uh, come around that and try uh, if a marriage has failed or, or if there's been an unexpected pregnancy and there's a single a mom, uh, God can still work in that and do that. But I'm talking about the ideal as God established it. There was the marriage and there were children born to a mom and a dad and they were raised up under the authority of their parents. And all through scripture, there is this running theme that children are to be disciplined by their parents. Discipleship and discipline are very closely tied together. 
We can't be a disciple without being willing to be disciplined. That's what a disciple does. They are disciplined by their teacher. Discipline means to be trained by. To be trained. It actually at the root has the meaning of a reed that is bent the wrong way. And you take the corrective action to get it straightened out again. You see, discipline is getting them on the straight path that God wants for them. Proverbs 19 and verse 18, God's word says this. Discipline your children, for in that there is hope. Okay? So he's saying, if you, if you want to, to give your children the hope that, that they ought to have, you have to be willing to discipline them. All right? That, that's what leads to that hope. That's where it is. And then he adds this. Do not be a willing party to their death. Wait a minute. Discipline and not disciplining is connected to being a willing party in their death. What God's word is teaching is that without discipline in our lives, we end up putting our lives at risk in ways we should not. We end up hurting ourselves and hurting others. We cause destruction. We cause chaos with our lives when we live undisciplined lives. There's a difference in being ruled by force and being someone who chooses to come under the training and discipline of God. God's not going to force us to follow his plan, but his plan is there for us. And parents are supposed to teach children and, and, and not just parents, but the church wants to come around parents and, and, and support and encourage and supplement that teaching with the teaching we can provide as a church so that the discipline training they need in their lives is there. Why? Because we want them to live the discipline of God because that's where they find their hope for life. I want my child to have hope, my grandchildren to have hope, don't you? And it's found in the discipline, the training of the parents and the other adults that have influence over their lives. In the New Testament, in Ephesians 6, beginning with verse 1, it says this, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. So what's God's will for the children? That they be disciplined enough to be obedient to their parents. Okay. It says, honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise. You see the connection he's making? There's a commandment for children, honor your father and mother in the Lord. But it's not just the commandment. That commandment is connected to a promise. That if you do this, here's the promise that God gives you with this. So that it may go well with you and that you may, you may enjoy long life on the earth you see the connection between disciplined obedience and having a good life the life God wants you to have that's why parents other adults that have influence over the generations coming behind us this idea of discipleship is closely tied to the idea of pouring into them the disciplined lifestyle that God wants them to have why because that's where the hope is found that's where the blessings are found that God wants to pour into their lives. So we need to be willing to recognize their giftedness, but also recognize their need to learn obedience. And then we need to do another step. And it's one of the hardest steps for parents. Uh, I, I have a hard time with it. I have had. I, I know that other parents have struggled with this. And that's the next step, which is to release the child when it's time. Our job as parents is not to keep our children dependent on us. It's not to keep them under us. That's not our role 
as parents. It's not our role as other adults to make them dependent on us in their lives. Instead, our goal is to make them independent of us while teaching them to learn total dependence on God. That's a transition that has to happen if God's plan is going to be fulfilled in their lives. So we've got to keep the ultimate goal in mind when we are discipling the younger people coming behind us. The ultimate goal is to teach them to on their own choose God's way, to on their own uh, acknowledge God over them, to on their own uh, value the teachings of God for their lives, to make that choice, to make it their choice to live like that so that they're independent of us. Their faith is not, not there just because it was our faith. It's there because they've learned and chosen that that's the best way to live their lives. So their faith and following of Jesus is who they are now as independent adults. In 1 Timothy 4 and verse 12, Paul's writing to a younger man than him. He's been mentoring Timothy, it looks like, according to the scriptures for a while, helping him as a young leader in the church. And he gives them this instruction in verse 12. Don't let anyone look down on you because you're young. But set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. If you want to get some life goals for your kids, look at this list. That they would grow up to set an example, even as young people. They would be setting the example God wants them to set for the believers in speech. What's their speech sounding like right now? In conduct, how are they behaving? In love, do they love like God loves? In faith, are they trusting God? In purity, are they giving their bodies over to God? In purity, following his plan for their lives. Now, no child's going to be perfect other than Jesus. That's why this comparison fails on this level. We can't expect our children to have the exact same greatness as Jesus. But in every child, there is this potential for greatness that God has put in them. And our role as adults is to disciple them. And discipleship is an ongoing process. And in order for us to take it seriously and do a good job with it, we have to be convinced of this. That God's plan for them is the best plan. It's better than what we could come up with. It's better than what the culture has for them. God's plan for them and their lives is the best plan. In Ephesians 2.10, I love this reminder that Paul gives us. He says this, for every human being, this is what God wants. We are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus for what reason? To do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. God has a prepared plan of good stuff he wants every human being to do while they're here on this earth. And our role as adults is to disciple those coming behind us to embrace God's plan. But I want to focus for a moment on that word that's translated handiwork. We are God's handiwork. It's an interesting word in the Greek. It carries with it the idea of a masterpiece that God has crafted. That every human being is a masterpiece of God. Now you could take a masterpiece and mess it up and abuse it, can't you? But it was crafted by God as his masterpiece. And here's the amazing thing about the grace and the love of God. 
even when we fail and mess up the masterpiece, God has the willingness and the power and the desire to wash us clean and make us new as his masterpiece again. And if you're ready today to come under the, the, the craft of God, the hand of God, the work of God and his work in your life to form you into the masterpiece he wants you to be, then you can take that step today by surrendering your life over to him. If you need to talk to someone about that today, please message us. We'll be happy to follow up with you and guide you in the steps that you need to take. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that we are reminded when we see your plan for Jesus being sent here to the world to, to be our Savior, that you still chose to work through human beings, parents to, to raise him and bring him up and, and guide and direct him in his life. But Father, all parents have that responsibility. In fact, all adults have some responsibility there with those that are coming behind us. Help us to take seriously our role to disciple those that are coming along behind us and to help them to see the value of your plan and your purpose for their lives. And if there's anyone who needs to take that step to, to come under your work in their lives and, and be remade into the masterpiece that you want for them to be, I pray that they would take that step even today. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. And now let's take a few moments and remember God's plan for that child was to allow him to go to the cross for us and pay that price for our sins.